Hello and welcome to this week's Strange Pathways. I am your host, Scott Mort. Yes, there was a special guest last week. Uh, my, as if on cue, my, uh, my cat, Wilford Brimley, decided to come by and say hello. Uh, I went ahead and left it in. I thought it was cute. I I actually have five cats. I should introduce everybody, I suppose. Uh, I have a short-haired orange cat, Wilford Brimley. That was him, just then, as if on cue. Uh, his his uh, sisters live with him, Jazzy and Alex. His mom also lives with him, Greta Garbo. And then we have uh, a fifth cat, Isaac Newton, uh, who is no relation but family just the same. And then I, uh, I also have a little tiny chihuahua I found in the woods several, several years ago named Pebbles. And uh, Pebbles, Pebbles, he's adorable. He, is, he owns the house. The other, the other cats, me, my wife, we just live here. Pebbles is definitely the owner of the house. Uh, he's, he's missing an eye, cute little guys. And, uh, you know what? Up on the, uh, Facebook page, I'll post photos of the entire family. We don't do a lot of true crime on strange pathways. Uh, I've, I've mentioned before, you, you start to talk about crime and if you do it week after week after week, two times a week. For me personally, it starts to wear on my psyche. But, but this week, I'm going to make an exception. I found an, an absolutely fascinating case. It's going to take us all the way to Austerlitz, New York. Simon Vandercook, he's, he's 55 years old at this time. And he is a self-described eccentric wanderer. Uh... He's, we all know someone like Simon. Simon is, is the guy who's going to get rich, but has just enough follow through to get himself in trouble. Now, Simon Vandercook in 1882, he claims, he claims he discovered gold in Alford, Massachusetts and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really, really use the word claim in quotation marks. He claims. Uh, there, there are a lot of small iron mines in Berkshire. It's, Berkshire County is where Alfred, Massachusetts is in. There's a lot of small iron mines. There's marble. So a gold discovery, mm, not really impossible. Just highly improbable. Now, Vandercook purchased this land from Oscar Beckwith. Oscar Beckwith is a 72-year-old hermit who lives in the woods in Austerlitz. He's just got this small, tiny shack. Doesn't really even have furniture. He's got a stove, a bunk, two stools. And it's kind of... It's kind of even in a creepy place. It's in a, it's in this like ledge under a rock. Now, granted, he's 72 years old, but he is a powerful, strong man. He's not 
the best man in the world either. He's actually served time for stealing horses, which in this time is kind of like saying somebody's a car thief. On January 10th, 1882, Vandercook left where he was being boarded at, and which was a farm near Alfred, Massachusetts. Uh, the farm was owned by Harrison Calkins. He, he leaves there in the morning to talk with Oscar Beckwith. Never returns. Never returns. So, Calkins, being a good man, he decides he's going to go look for Vandercook. As he gets nearer to this hermit's shack, Oscar Beckwith, he smells burning meat. It's nothing he's ever smelled before. Cotkins looks at Beckwith and says, My God, what are you burning? Beckwith tells him he's just pork rinds. He said that he goes, well, where's, where's, where's Vandercook? Calkins asks, where's, where's the guy who's staying at my place? And Beckwith tells him that Vandercook had left with a man from Green River, New York, and wouldn't be back until March. This makes Calkins really, really suspicious. The next day, he goes back, doesn't find Beckwith in the house anymore. But inside the shack is the dismembered remains of Simon Vandercook. The back would split down between the ribs and the other portions were sawed and cut up. Vandercook's bowels and intestines were in a basket. Strips of flesh were on the bed. An arm and a leg were on the floor right next to the axe. And there was blood on the axe. In the stove charred bones his head feet arms the coroner common sense demands the coroner rules that beckwith had murdered vandercook but there are no funds available in the town to pursue the killer that blows my mind and that's, that's really why I wanted to talk about this case. It's not, not paranormal, but it is shocking that the town just kind of said, we don't have the money. We don't have the money to, to make justice happen. And I bet, I would bet that things are more like that today than we realize. I'm willing to put put money down that a lot of times a lot of truly, truly evil deeds are let go just because the money isn't there to prosecute or to chase. Thankfully, the town of Alford, they offered a $500 reward for Beckwith's capture. The governor of New York offered another 500 The sheriff of Columbia County offered $250. Now these rewards they they generated several arrests people who looked like Beckworth. But Beckworth was already in Canada. 
and the rumors the rumors started flying uh uh, one person uh, said that uh, Beckwith had eaten a horse and uh, and died from the horse because the horse wasn't killed. It had died of a disease. Uh, another person said that uh, Vander, Cook, uh, Vander Cook's flesh had been salted down so Beckwith could preserve it to get him through the winter. More rumors. Vandercook's liver was found in Beckwith's frying pan. Uh, part of it was missing. So that's where we start to get these rumors of cannibalism. Uh, and the, the stories, as time goes on, the stories get more and more extravagant. A woman named Mrs. Wolsey Peck had gone to pick berries near Beckwith's shack uh, a few years before and went missing. And people started to say Beckwith murdered her, ate her. There were rumors that he had a fondness for human flesh, especially that of Native American women. And because of these rumors, which, let's face it, it it's, it's not a big jump from what he did to eating people. But he became known as the Cannibal of Austerlitz. He was able to evade capture until 1885. This piece of slime was able to be free and amongst us for three years. An extremely diligent detective, J.B. Gildersleeves of Columbia County, tracked this man through Canada captured him in Bracebridge, Ontario, and brought him back to New York to stand trial. He was tried in Hudson, New York, convicted of first-degree murder, but there was a succession of appeals, retrials, lunacy hearing. It took, in total, six trials before Beckwith was, was convicted and sentenced to hang in 1888. Each trial, though, trial one, two, three, four, five, six, each trial, cannibalism never mentioned. Beckwith is hanged. Hudson, New York, March 1st, 1888. It's New York's last execution by hanging. And at age 78... Beckwith is the oldest man to ever hang in New York State. Now, in, in case you don't know, in case you don't know, it's, it's not really strangulation that kills somebody whenever they're hung. It's the fall, the sudden stop, snaps the neck. But Beckwith, like we said, he was strong. Years and years and years of hard labor had made this a tough man. And Beckwith, well, Beckwith's neck didn't break. And he swung for 18 
horrible minutes before dying. I, I often believe, and this is my own personal belief, uh, like I said before, I, I was on a true crime podcast for about two years, and it did psychologically. It, it did wear on me. But time after time after time, case after case after case, it really did seem like something paranormal was assisting these these killers. None none more so. We did an episode on the bloody benders. None more so than the bloody benders. Did did it seem like something something otherworldly and sinister was helping these people? Like, through through our research, we found out that the bloody benders actually put bodies they hid bodies of their victim in their drinking well and how these people did not get sick and die from the decomposing corpses in their well is beyond me absolutely beyond me like i said it's it's as if something paranormal is assisting these people And sometimes I see that Beckwith swung for 18 minutes before dying. I see that. And in my mind, I go, that 18 minutes, you don't, you don't get that three years of freedom. You don't get those murders for free. No, 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 no. You wanted to do this. You pay. And your payment is going to be 18 hellish minutes at the end of a rope. Our next tale is going to take us about three miles southeast of Kapunda. That's in the southern plains of Australia. We're going to go to St. John's Cemetery. There is a little bit of history here. The Church of St. John the Evangelist opened in 1854... It was established as a school in 1859, and by 1867, they had a post office. Now, St. John's was turned into a school, 1897, and then it became part of a girls' reformatory operated by the Sisters of St. Joseph's. I get it. That's a lot of history in a short amount of time. The important part is that girl's reformatory. Now, one of those inmates was uh, an 18-year-old girl named Ruby Olive Murray Bland. And most of the people who go to this little little town three miles southeast of Kapunda, they're there to see Ruby. Ruby died November 28th, 1909. The story goes that Ruby was impregnated by a crazed priest and died as a result of the injuries while he was physically abusing her, trying to abort the child. Now, the records of the time 
this isn't like an urban legend like like you know the oh you know hook on the door handle or this girl was stung to death because there were spiders uh nesting in her beehive hairdo it's nothing like that ruby olive murray bland did exist and we have records there are records that say Ruby was experiencing abdominal pain so severe that on November 15, 1909, she was admitted to hospital. That paperwork goes on and says that the doctor suspected that she was suffering from a stone in the bile duct of her liver and that she died on the operating table. Those forms, those same forms identify her as a Catholic of no fixed address and she had suffered from the condition that killed her for five years. Gallstones? Gallstones in someone that young is unusual. Although I want to say, I want to say that my friend Chase had gallstones around that age. Chase, you'll remember Chase, longtime listeners of of this youtube channel we'll know we'll know chase from several of the episodes that we've done before uh way way back in the past before this got onto a regular schedule it does get a little bit weirder ruby was issued a baptismal certificate while she was in the hospital the note attached actually reads Ruby Bland baptized conditionally at the hospital before going into surgery. Why why would a girl born into a Catholic family need to be baptized at the hospital? That's that's pretty late. Most of the Catholic families I know have their babies baptized very very early. I myself wasn't raised Catholic, but I was raised Lutheran. And I don't remember my baptism. That's that's for certain, but I know I've been baptized. There, there, maybe, maybe because she was at a reformatory, and maybe it was like... You know, that, there's a possibility. There's a possibility. She's at the reformatory... They asked her, are you baptized in the hospital? She may have said, I don't know, right? Because if you're baptized super young, like myself, like so many others that I know, maybe you just don't know. So you can, you can receive a conditional bapti- baptism. I'm willing to bet. I'm willing to bet that is. I'm willing to bet that that is what it is. Now, there are those that have suggested that the church itself may have attempted to hide the fact of what went on between her and the priest. Let's face it. Let's really face facts. The Catholic Church has been, up until a few years ago, really good at hiding some of the crap that their priests have gone up to. It is one of the reasons I'm no longer, I'm I'm not going to say I'm no longer associated 
with the church, but I am no longer the religion that I am. Nothing ever happened to me, you know, in, in that regard. The pastor I had growing up was a mostly wonderful man. I know that he would be very disappointed that I'm in an interracial marriage now. It was of a different time, but maybe that's not really an excuse. Maybe that's not really an excuse. So, was was she at the hospital? Was it legitimately a, a blocked bile duct? Was there, perhaps, you know, Catholic churches are really well known for their physical discipline. Perhaps she sustained injuries from the church. Perhaps the story of a crazed priest trying to perform a makeshift abortion on his own child. Maybe that's the truth as well. It gets a little weirder. Her death certificate lists her address as Mount Pole, New South Wales. Lists her next of kin as Elizabeth Penns of Renmark, New South Wales. This is this is odd because her parents, William and Margaret Bland, were alive. They didn't die until 1923 and 1946. William in 23, Margaret in 46. Ruby was the youngest of six children. It's... And she wasn't born out of wedlock. Her parents married in 1868. Why? Why are they not listed as the parents? Her next of kin. And you know what? We we can't dismiss that that crazed priest theory. There was, in fact, an unstable priest at the reformatory at the time of Ruby Bland's death. His name was Father James Martin. He was ordained in 1890, born in Ireland in 1864. He ended up in Australia in 1897. He was assigned to St. John's Reformatory, and yeah, there were problems. In August of 1909, which is just four months before Ruby's death, James Gray who was the head of the Children's Department of South Australia, he wrote a letter complaining to the Archbishop. He had heard allegations of a, of a priest residing in the reformatory whose, and this is a quote, mental condition was at least unstable while his physical frame was powerful. I don't think that it's a short jump to say this guy is crazy, and he is beating the inmates. Even whenever the archbishop replied to this letter, he goes, well, Martin isn't, isn't physically abusing the girls. But uh, <laughs> here's the quote. Here is the quote. The archbishop, out of his own mouth, mentally, he is not robust, I unreservedly admit. That's a case of CYA right there. I didn't I didn't think he was hitting the girls, but yeah, he was he was nuts. Anybody could see that. That's CYA right there. I've seen some of the best people at CYA. And I can smell CYA. That's CYA. 
for those that don't know, cover your butt. CYA. Ruby was buried within 24 hours of her death in St. John's Cemetery. It was nothing, nothing spooky or scary or, or strange about that. It was, it was late spring. It's warm. You're going to need a speedy burial. There was no autopsy, no investigation. That's not unusual at the time. Her relatives didn't have time to attend the funeral. (sighs) Yeah. They might not, you know, being that she was in a reformatory, they might not have attended anyway. Let's be honest. It didn't take long after Ruby died for events to start happening. People started to report that they felt like they were being watched in the cemetery. That they were being followed. It was almost as if Ruby's death was a catalyst to allow everything else there to start occurring. To this day, if you go out to Kapunda's St. John Cemetery, and if you do, please be respectful. It, it, it's People have vandalized the tombstones. People have, have broken them. People have been jerks. People have been real jerks. So if you go out there, be respectful. You know, it's, it, it's the old hiker's motto. You, you leave only footprints, you take only pictures. It's, it's not that hard, people. But to this day, people will hear footsteps. They'll hear disembodied babies crying, especially along the fence line, where there are many unmarked baby graves. In, in 1980, in 1980, there, there was an incredible event at the cemetery. Fifteen students from Kapunda saw a marble slab move back from one of the graves of the cemetery. And then a transparent girl carrying a lantern that had a yellowish glow emerged and walked through the cemetery. People said they, they hear and see the ghost of Reverend Martin. There was, even, there was even rumors that there was another ghost there that would scratch her name, Vera, on the walls. Kapunda has been called the most haunted town in Australia. And if the legends are true... If this was less of an orphanage, more of a prison. If Reverend Martin, well, there's no if there. Reverend Martin was unstable. But if he was as horrific as the legends claim, then there's no wonder why this place is haunted, is there? The trauma that's been inflicted upon there echoes through time itself 
Our last tale comes to us from the High Strangeness Board on Reddit. I'm, I'm not a fan of Reddit, but I do go there quite often. There's, there's a couple great places over on Reddit. You have the High Strangeness Board, the Unexplained Photos, the Church of Charles Fort is absolutely fantastic. So there are a lot of really nice places, but what I don't like about Reddit is that it's so temporary. Any, any user can delete their post at any time. And it does, it does give a, a sense of, it does give a sense of not, of, of not being a permanent thing. That we need to jump on this at any time because it could evaporate at any moment. Instead of it being, this is a record to be kept. And I often, I often sit back and wonder how many amazing tales, how many, how many wonderful stories have disappeared simply because somebody decided, no, this isn't worth having. How many answers were lost? I w- that's, that's really why I'm here. I want answers. How many answers were lost? But this was submitted rather recently by user Knight of the Mirrors. Now, Knight of the Mirrors is a wilderness survival instructor. He's also a security contractor. Uh, a, a student of his who's a good friend, and I understand that. I, I teach drums on the side. I've had many students that become very good friends. Uh, this student slash friend of his comes to him and goes, Hey, my dad just got... 150 acres of land. It's secluded. It's mountainous. He doesn't give the state. I understand that. That's fine. But he also says that there's a large amount of forest that had not been explored by his father yet. And his dad was only building something for his horses that took up about 100 yards of the property. And then he was going to have the horses roam free. Also, his dad just got a crazy good deal on it. So he goes, will, will you, you're the wilderness survival instructor. Will, will you take me out on there and you know, keep me safe? Guy goes, yeah. He, he knows that this, the, that his friend is a dad of three. He doesn't get out in the woods. So not only is it really fun, it feels like it's something that his friend needs. Knight of the Mirrors realizes his friend doesn't get out a lot. Let's go do this. He, you need a getaway. Now his friend's father goes, hey, don't go out there exploring unless you have a gun. There are coyotes out there. Now, I, I know something about coyotes. These men... They say they're indigenous peoples. So they know that the coyotes don't actually attack people. His his friend, though, he says a while back, whenever he was first at the property, he saw he saw something moving in the tree line that was roughly human. His eyesight's not that good, but it's Something there was was slightly human, human-shaped, human-sized. 
So Knight of the Mirrors brings his AR. He brings a small flint napping kit just for the fun of it. And they, they go off. They, they find fields, creeks, natural springs, ponds, beautiful landscape. And they decide, okay, we, we, we've kind of explored this. We found all this neat stuff. Let's get into the forested part of the property. And he says, as soon as he entered the tree line, the entire mood shifted. It, it felt gray and dead silent. There was, there was creaking of cedar trees. There was some, some stream sounds. Because he said there was a very small stream running through the center of it. But the sand was black. And he said he felt surrounded and watched on all sides. And then the smell hit them. The odor of rotting flesh. They, they go, they follow the smell, and they find the remains. They, it, it, everything's ripped apart so much that they, they can't tell if it's three cows or four cows. They look at the skulls. They don't really find any bullet holes. So he's going like, okay, the, it doesn't look like these cows are put down. Something has killed these guys, though, and spread their bones over a space of about 30 yards. There's huge, huge indentations on the dirt. Like something dug their feet in. They kind of, they kind of put it behind them and they go, okay, let's, let's press on deeper into the woods. It's so quiet, they can hear their own heartbeats. So they keep uh, stopping at the stream. They're seeing a lot of different types of tracks. Large coyote tracks. But something else, too. They really can't get a good idea of what this something else is, though. It, It seems like it's intentionally avoiding the sand. They go into the woods even deeper. They find trees that have been bent over and pinned behind other trees while they were still alive. That's not anything the wind can do. They hike on. They find what he describes as a tool made of bone lying on the ground. Really crude, but something like a, like a primitive scooping tool or, or a knife. The, the survival expert, Knight of the Mirrors, says that it's, it looks primitive, but way more primitive than, than a human would make, but it's intentionally shaped. They hike on. They find a clearing with a pond. More of these strange oval tracks. And then they find this little tree structure on the other side of the pond. It's like a little A-frame. It's got rocks placed up against it. It's not sturdy. The rocks are peculiarly placed. No sign of campfires. No, no camping trash. 
there's something out in these woods killing cows and making the tools out of the bones. They decide we need to get out of here before it gets too dark to see. They make their way out back to where they park the trucks just in time. As they're leaving, they both see something on the top of the hills that they can't identify. He also says it's, it's worth mentioning the previous owner began construction of something on the property. He stopped that construction and left. He's taken, he's taken a lot of photos. I'm going to put those photos up on the Strange Pathways Facebook page. I'll also link to the story on the High Strangeness subreddit. I hope this story doesn't disappear. I hope, I actually hope that we find out more about this because I find this, I find this absolutely fascinating. Thank you for joining us again this week on Strange Pathways. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can do so at strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. Be sure to check out the Facebook page as well. Tell your friends about this show. If if you enjoy this, and I know a lot of you do, I'm, I'm getting more and more emails every single day. If you enjoy this, pass this on to a friend. Let others on forums, on websites you go to, let them know about Strange Pathways. Hey, this is a, this is a decent show. I'm enjoying it. Get the word out. I want this podcast to grow. I would love to do this. I would love to do this every single day. I'd love to make this a daily podcast. But in order to do that, it's going to have to grow to something larger than what it is. I have no fear of running out of stories. I have got an amazing back catalog that even if I did it daily would take me for years. And we are living in a world where where the strangeness is such that new stories are coming out all the time. So I'm in no fear of losing stories. I'd love to go on investigations again as well. So that's up to you guys, the listeners. Get the show out there. Let others know about it. Thank you once again for joining us this week. Take care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.